All right, is everybody ready for story time? Mm-hmm. What happened last in our story? Grown-ups happen? What does that mean? Uh, they met little, little kid grown-ups. They met little kid grown-ups. They met their mother and their other mother, because they're cousins. They met their mothers when their mothers were little girls, right? And another aunt and their uncle. All right. <clears throat> Chapter 6. Time out of mind. There was so much to talk over about the island and the treasure and the cannibals, that it was at least five minutes before anyone thought of telling the Natterjack. The one who had thought of it was Roger, which was typical. As their mother often said, he was the thoughtful one. The Natterjack, when found, still under its counterpane of woolly time, was prodded by Eliza and reported to by all three children talking at once. It looked grave. I thought it might happen that way, it said. Difficult thing, common time. Not exclusive at all. Traffic gets crowded. Still, just worth making the effort. And now you'll have to think of something else, won't you? said Eliza. The Natterjack gave her a look. I don't have to do anything, it said. I may possibly try, should the occasion arise. Humph, said Eliza. If the garden's as magic as you say it is, you could try right now. The afternoon is still young. You could just tell it to take us to our mothers right this minute, and no nonsense. I could, admitted the Natterjack. It'd be duck soup. It'd be duck soup to it said Eliza. And you, said the Natterjack, might end up in a stew. These things aren't so easy as all that. I'll have to study the rules. It all has to be done according to oil, and that takes time. Here then, said Eliza, pulling up a tuft of the woolly-leaved thyme and holding it out. The Natterjack puffed itself up and its eyes seemed to send forth sparks. Anne and Roger and Eliza were reminded suddenly of its dragon-like behavior on the day it reformed the Concord kidnappers. Put that time back, it said. You don't know where it might go. Any more tampering with this air gardening? It went on sternly, and it's the end. Eliza rather shamefacedly replanted the woolly tuft she knew, sometimes, when she had gone too far. The Natterjack relaxed a bit, but its tones were still grim. It might interest you to know, it said, that if you had rubbed that there at this moment, you have ended up on a sheep farm in Australia in the year 1912, and little would have been gained by anybody. It yawned. And now leave me in peace. I have unfinished business to take care of. But you'll be working on it, said Roger. You'll be thinking of ways for us to see Mother? I may, said the Natterjack, and I may not. And the three children had to be contented with that. But Eliza 
was not contented. Later that day, Jack came home from his party of pleasure at Candy Drake's house, and of course, he had to be told about the events of the afternoon. He was interested, not so much in what had happened as in future possibilities. This is keen, he said. If you could tune in on Mother and the others that way, we can pick them up again at all kinds of interesting times, like when Uncle Mark made the touchdown for Harvard, or when Pop proposed to Mother at the umpty six formal. Who cares about things like that, said Eliza. It's more of their magical adventures I want to see. And all the other magic children we might run into. We might find the phoenix and the carpet ones, or that boy in the midnight folk, the night he went to the witches' meeting and met Rolla Combitum. Now we know about common time. We can use the kitchen garden every day, and the Natterjack won't even have to know. Roger shook his head. It wouldn't work. Why not, said Eliza. I don't know. I just know it wouldn't. It would be repeating, and we never have so far. It's as if there were doors into the magic, sort of, and you can only use each one once. Anyway, that's what I think. Bushwa, said Jack. At least we can try. Let's go try now. Well, not right now, said Eliza. Maybe tomorrow. Scared? Of course not. It's just... Eliza left her sentence unfinished. She turned and wandered away into the house and upstairs to her bedroom. She wanted to be alone. What do you say we go for a walk on the beach, said Roger to Anne. All right, said Anne. And they started down the stairway and the cliff. Finding himself by himself, Jack made a move in the direction of the kitchen garden. Then he stopped. What was the matter with him? worrying about magic plants and talking toads and things that couldn't possibly be true. That day in Concord with the March girls was all a dream. Probably. Or else there was some scientific explanation. How childish can you get, said Jack to himself. And he went into the house to telephone Mary Lou Luckinville. Eliza, meanwhile, sat in her bedroom and thought. I hope the thoughts you have been having about Eliza have not been too harsh. She was really not so bossy and forward and pert and impossible as all she too often seemed. It was the way she was made. Not enough patience had been put in, and too many of those things that your teacher calls qualities of leadership. To be a leader is all very well when other people follow you, but when they suddenly don't and you find yourself charging off all alone in a wrong direction, it can be shaming. And when you seldom if ever, think before you speak. That could be shaming, too, thinking back on it later. When Eliza was alone, she was haunted more often than you might believe by the memory of the reckless things she had done here and there during the day. And the echo of her idle boasting would ring loud in her ears and bring a blush to her cheek. But she was seldom one to admit she was wrong and learn by experience or to sit back and wait for events to work out by themselves. Perhaps you know someone who is like this. And if she missed her mother just as much as Anne missed hers, she was not one to admit this either. Now as she sat and thought in her room, she decided to handle the current crisis in a reasonable and restrained manner. She would give the Natterjack three whole days to think up some kind of satisfactory procedure. If it hadn't hit on anything by that time, she would act. And that is exactly how it worked out. The three days went by without sight of the Natterjack, 
and the worldly events they contained were pleasant ones, but there was no magic in them. It was on the afternoon of the third day that Roger and Anne and Jack and Eliza made their seventeenth visit to the Time Garden to see if anything were likely to begin happening, and found that nothing apparently was. The Natterjack, if present, was concealed. The four of them started back to the house, and because they had nothing to do and time hung heavy, they stopped off at the potting shed to bother old Henry. Old Henry was busy was busily dealing with early seeds collected from the garden, storing them away in little labeled envelopes for the next season's planting. Breathe light, he said. Chancy thing, seeds. Seeds is. And the four children could see that they were. And being smaller than grains of sand, and as easily overlooked, while others were light and thistledownish, the prey of every passing breeze. There were store-bought seeds, too, lying in tantalizing packets on the shelf, and Eliza stood turning these over idly. The lettering on one of them caught her eye. She gasped. Then almost before she knew it, she had slipped the brown, small envelope into her pocket. Old Henry and the others didn't seem to have noticed. Come on, she said, trying to sound nonchalant. Let's go sit on the cliff. But there was something in her voice that made the others obey. Look, she went on, when all were established on comfortable rocks. She brought the brown envelope out and pointed. Old English time, mixed, read Roger, from the bold capitals at the top, and then further down in smaller, Thompson and Morgan, Ipswich, Suffolk. Well, said Eliza, if that won't take us to London, what will? It might take us to Ipswich, Suffolk, said Jack. It might be right across England. It won't if I tell it not to, said Eliza. And if it does, we can catch a train. Would seeds work? Anne wondered. Why not? They're the germ of the whole thing. There wouldn't even be a garden if it weren't for seeds in the first place. What's more magic than a seed when you come to think of it? This ought to be the best way yet. Roger shook his head. They're stolen property. Cheaters never prosper. It'd be breaking the rules. There comes a time, said Eliza firmly, when you have to. Anyway, look at that little girl, Martha. She broke her rules, didn't they say, when she ended up on that cannibal island? And look who she grew up to be. You'll just be following your own mother's example. Yes, and remember what happened to her, said Anne. Nothing much did in the end, Eliza reminded her triumphantly. We came along and saved her. Something always does, sooner or later. Roger shook his head. You can't count on that. Anyway, she was too young to know better. If a mere babe could do it, said Eliza, who are we to be behind hand? How will we start, said Jack. Rub and, and sniff the same as usual? Only seeds wouldn't have any fragrance, would they? Maybe we ought to taste them. Stop encouraging her, said Roger. Jack looked sheepish. I'm kind of curious. I want to see if it would work. Not that it matters. It's all just imagination, probably. Anne got up purposefully. I'm going to find the Natterjack, she said. Tattletale, said Eliza. I don't think so, said Roger, getting up too. I don't think it comes under that heading at all. We're just saving you from your baser instincts. Come on, hurry, said Anne. And she and Roger ran for the time garden. Quick, before they get there, cried Eliza. How'll we do it? Wish first, and then try a little of everything, advised Jack. All right, said Eliza. I wish we were in London right now. 
Jack tore open the brown envelope. Tiny seeds rolled out into his palm. He and Eliza rubbed some between their hands, spilling quite a few that later came up and bloomed in the rock crevices, and old Henry never knew how they got there. They sniffed the fragrance, which was more like dust and old dried leaves than anything else. They tasted a few and found them the reverse of succulent. The next moment, London was all around them. They knew it was London from the bustle and the noise and the crowds, and from the tower that graced the background, only not near enough for Eliza to take a good look yet, and from the street cries that resounded in Cockney accents on every hand. Sweet lavender, and cherry ripe, 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 and shrimp slime, oh! But it wasn't London they had in mind at all. The men that thronged its streets were decked out in doublets and hose and pointed beards. The women wore long skirts and kirtles. The buildings were old and gabled and queer, and yet familiar from pictures in Master Skylark and the Prince and the Pauper. What happened, said Jack. It's that seed, said Eliza. It said old English. And it said mixed time, Jack reminded. And it did. It mixed the centuries. Who cares, said Eliza, looking around her with wide eyes. This is keen. But now the lavender sellers and the cherry vendors and the shrimp merchants were looking at them. And first one and then another began to titter and point until the whole crowd was roaring with laughter. Jack and Eliza looked at each other and then down at themselves. And, they, and then they knew why. Up to now, the four children had never had to worry about their modern clothes when time traveling. The magic always arranged all that. So far, no one had noticed a thing. But now, Eliza had broken the rules, and the magic was not prepared to be so accommodating. And there she and Jack were, in the middle of old-time London, Jack in his best Bermuda shorts and sports jacket, and Eliza in a faded yellow cotton dress and ankle socks. And everybody was noticing. See the great boobies all part naked in the street, said one. Maybe they fell in the Thames, said another, and their garments shrank. Jack blushed and edged behind Eliza, scrooching down and trying to make his Bermudas come as low on his legs as possible. But Eliza brazened it out. You'd think, she said, nobody had ever seen knees before, and she glared haughtily at the crowd. Luckily, at this moment, there was a distraction. A company of people was issuing from one of the buildings nearby. Surrounded by a crowd of gentlemen in peacock colors, walked a stately lady in a wide farthingale, a jeweled stomacher, and an immense ruff. The face above the ruff was painted, and its nose was sharp. Hair of the brightest red completed the picture. Neither Jack nor Eliza needed to be told who the lady was, particularly when all the onlookers took off their caps, and some knelt, and the air rang with cheers and huzzas. And any doubts they might have had were stilled, when the lady encountered a mud puddle on her path and stopped short, turning to the bearded gentleman on her right. "'Well, Sir Walter,' she said, smiling grimly, "'have you forgotten your manners? "'You were more prompt in younger days.' The bearded gentleman looked rebellious. Then he covered his annoyance with a smile. "'Madam, will you walk?' he said. And taking off his fine cloak, not without a glance of regret for its rich velvet and its satin lining, he spread it over the mud for the lady to tread upon, while all the people cheered louder and ever than ever and cried, Long live good Queen Bess! Long live Sir Walter Raleigh! 
Long live the ancient courtesy. You wanted to look at the queen, muttered Jack in Eliza's ear. Take a good look. So what and Eliza. Was, um, so they, the Natterjack, they came back, you know, and then the Natterjack, they're asking the Natterjack to go and try it again, but the Natterjack said no. And then after three days, Eliza found seeds for uh, Old England time mixed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so, um, they were like, oh, maybe we could, like, try using these. Because it's England, you gotta go to London, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, and was like, yeah, let's do it. And Rod, Rod, yeah, Roger and Anne said, no, I'm we're gonna go tell the Natter Jack. But um, and while they were gone, um, Jack, one who didn't really believe, and then um, Eliza, they um wished and then tasted it, mm -hmm. and then they went to. London, but it was old. So, oh. they're, they're in it's old England now. It's just Jack and Eliza? Just yeah. Jack and Eliza, yes. All right. Uh, to continue. You wanted to have a look at the Queen, muttered Jack in Eliza's ear. Take a good look. And Eliza did. Not at all put out by the fact that the Queen had seen her now and was taking a good look at her. Splud! cried good Queen Bess. What manner of savage is this that stands before the queen's presence with her nether limbs exposed? Eliza had been thinking what to say. Now she said it. O queen, she said, we are strangers come from a far land in our native dress to do you homage. The queen's eyes narrowed. What far land would that be? Not hated Spain? Nay, said Eliza, we come from America. The queen turned to the bearded gentleman who was busy trying to clean the worst mud from his cloak. What say you, Sir Walter? Does this wench resemble the natives of your far wilderness of potato and the tobacco? Not one bit, said Sir Walter. He eyed Eliza shrewdly. If you are an American, where's your beads and feathers? Where's your wampum? Jack felt he had been silent too long. Wampum, he said, stepping forward, is a thing of the past. We come from the United States, only they haven't happened yet. We come from the future. A murmur of disbelief ran through the crowd. The queen had not noticed Jack before, and now her eyes dwelt with approval on his youthful frame. She did not seem to mind at the knees. Interesting, she said, if true. She turned to her companions. The lad is well favored, though the lass is a plain enough wench. Eliza sputtered with indignation. But before she could speak, a scholarly-looking gentleman had appeared at the Queen's elbow. A likely story, he said. They are undoubtedly Spanish spies sent to do harm upon your majesty's person. Not necessarily, said the Queen, regarding him coldly. There are more things in heaven and earth, Master Francis Bacon, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Francis Bacon, said Eliza, jiggling up and down excitedly. I've heard of you. People say you wrote Shakespeare. Who says so, cried the gentleman angrily. I never. Good, said Eliza. That's settled then. Silence, roared the queen, glaring at them both. Hold your tongue, you bold-faced jig. Stand still. Speak when you're spoken to. 
and don't twiddle your fingers all the time, said Eliza. But she didn't say it out loud. Now then, said the queen, returning to Jack, and assuming friendlier tones. How call they you in this future world that you say you inhabit? My name is Jack, said Jack. A good old English name, approved the queen. And she's Eliza, said Jack. Oh ho, said the queen, bending a more favorable look upon the young lady. So my fame has traveled even to your far time, has it? She was named for me, of course. Not exactly, said Jack, who was a truthful boy. She was named for great aunt Eliza Tompkins. But she might have been named for you. Like as not, said Eliza quickly. All kinds of modern things are. Why, sure, said Jack, getting an idea. We call this whole century the Elizabethan age. My English teacher says that it was just about the best age ever. True, true, said the queen, looking around her with utter self-satisfaction. One of the greatest ships we have is called the Queen Elizabeth, said Eliza. Only fitting and proper, nodded the queen. Go on. Well, there's Elizabeth, New Jersey, said Eliza, who was beginning to run out of Elizabeths. And Elizabeth Taylor, put in Jack. Two noble ladies of your century, I presume, said the queen. I am delighted to hear it. She raised her voice and addressed the crowd. I am satisfied that these brats speak the truth. And they have told me of their times. What they have told me of their times has convinced me. And very sensible times they seem to be, with a proper regard for their glorious ancestry. Let us give them a royal welcome. The lad looks ripe for the palace guard. Take him away and outfit him suitably. Lucky you, said Eliza, enviously to Jack. We wanted to see them changing the guard at Buckingham Palace, and now you'll be in it. Our palace, Queen Elizabeth corrected her, is called Whitehall. That's okay by me, said Jack. No skin off my neck either way. And a crowd of handsome fellow, uh, and a crowd of handsome young men, who all seemed to be splendid fellows, led him away, clapping him on the back and welcoming him to their stalwart company. As for the wench, went on the queen, let her be carried back to Whitehall as she is, short kilts and all. With her outlandish rig and her fantastical tales of the future, she should afford us more sport than a whole gaggle of court jesters. Eliza was not at all sure she liked the comparison. But when spirited steeds were brought, and she was helped to mount one, and when she galloped away through the streets of London, behind the fabled queen, her heart sang high. And the fact that a gentleman rode on each side of her and kept strict watch to see that she didn't turn out to be a Spanish spy after all, only added to the excitement. And the way people lined the streets and shouted and threw their caps in the air made Eliza feel almost as if, almost as though it were she that they were cheering and not the other Elizabeth. She bowed to the right and left in what she hoped was a regal way and blew kisses to the crowd. And then they were at Whitehall. As a palace, it was not so dusty. The rooms, while not of emerald city splendor, were big and impressive and the courtiers who thronged its halls were handsome as heroes of romance and blazing with gems and satin. Only none blazed so brightly as Queen Elizabeth herself. Eliza followed the queen into the throne room and stood at her right hand. Hardly was her majesty seated when a young man even more richly dressed than average strode into the room and knelt before her, kissing her hand. Ha! said the queen. You are late, Robin. 
A thousand pardons, dear Gloriana, said the young man, and a pox upon the cursed business that kept me from your side a single moment. Humph, said the queen, you have missed a prime sport by not attending to us sooner. Behold, an envoy from the future has descended upon us with rare news of things to come. How say you, my lady posterity, she turned to Eliza, is the name of Milord of Essex famous in your far time also? Eliza wrinkled her forehead. I've heard something about him, she said, but I can't remember just what. Ho, ho, said the queen, and Eliza thought she sounded pleased. You have not heard, for example, that he married his sovereign and became king to reign with her? Oh, no, said Eliza. I'm sure it wasn't anything like that. You never married anybody. They called you the Virgin Queen. And so they jolly well ought to, said the queen, complacently. The face of the young man fell. If he hadn't been such a splendid young gentleman, Eliza would have said that he pouted. The queen looked at his face and laughed. Cheer up, Robin Abobbin, she said. You know you are king in my heart. Is not that sufficient? The young man quickly put on an adoring smile. To be sure, it is more than enough, dear Gloriana, he said. But Eliza did not think that he meant it. That's my Robin Goodfellow, said the queen, putting out her hand. The handsome young man pressed it between his own hands ardently. It was at that moment that Eliza remembered suddenly what she had heard about Robert Earl of Essex. And, as so often happened with Eliza, she spoke her thought aloud without pause for consideration. If you like him as much as all that, she said, why do you cut off his head later? A second after she had said it, she wished she hadn't. And well she might. The Earl of Essex turned pale and dropped the Queen's hand as though it had burnt him. The Queen turned even paler than he, and her eyes glittered. The courtiers, who were near enough to hear, whispered together, and some giggled. Then the scarlet of anger swept over the queen's face, and she boxed Eliza's ear in a most unqueenly way. Splud, she cried with an awful voice. What treason is this? Who told you to say those words? Nobody, said Eliza in a small voice. It's true. I read it in a history book. I don't believe you, said the queen. It's a plot to drive my robin from my side. I don't believe you are a visitor from the future one bit. Probably a witch, said Sir Walter Raleigh. Or a traitoress in pay of my enemies, said my lord of Essex, beginning to recover from the shock. Or a spy of hated Spain, just as I said, said Master Francis Bacon. Away with her, to the tower, cried the queen. Let her cool her heels in prison cell until I make up my mind what to do with her. She shall be burnt, or, or beheaded, or both, as a warning to all who would harm my Robin a bobbin. Guards, ho! A score of guardsmen surged forward. I take it back, cried the wretched Eliza. It probably isn't going to happen at all. I probably got it wrong. I never was very good in history. Ask my teacher. <laughs> Aha, cried the queen. So, you have a teacher, do you? I thought you were over young for such mitching malacho without some prompting. Mayhap a taste of bread and water in solitary confinement will help you to remember your teacher's name. Take her away! Strong arms seized Eliza and began marching her the length of the throne room. Don't worry, breathed the shaky voice in her ear. We wanted to see the Tower of London, didn't we? Now we will. 
Eliza looked up and met the familiar gaze of Jack as he moved along at her side with the rest of the Queen's guard. She had never been so glad to see her brother in her life. Thank heaven, she said. I'd forgotten all about you. But apparently the Queen had forgotten about him too, and now she remembered it. For at this moment her voice rang out. Nay, stay, halt. The guards halted. Let the lad who calls himself Jack be arrested immediately and brought to my council chamber. I would question him in private, commanded the queen. Too bad, old chap, said the guardsman on Jack's left, laying a hand on his shoulder. Here, don't worry about me. Save yourself, hissed Jack to Eliza, shoving something into her hand. No fraternizing with the prisoner. Sorry, old man, said the guardsman on Jack's right, taking him by the elbow and marching him around. And Jack was marched away in one direction and Eliza in another, one of the one of, out of the throne room and through the corridors of Whitehall. Her escort paused at the doorway. Flunkies sprang to open it. Outside, a flight of broad stone steps led downward. At their foot lapped the waters of the River Thames, a black and sinister-looking barge, stood moored and ready for any who were to make the fatal journey towerward. As Eliza stepped onto the barge, she unclenched her hand and looked at what Jack had thrust into it. It was the packet of thyme seed. But before she could do more than read the words, English mixed. The barge swung with the tide, jolting her, and the packet fell from her fingers. A puff of wind caught it and bore it aloft for a second. Then it fluttered down to the surface of the river and sailed away out of sight, carrying its precious cargo of safety with it. A sob was heard. Whether it was Eliza's, I will not say. Perhaps it was the remorseful wind. Cheer up, little lady. All may yet be well, said a kindly guardsman. But Eliza didn't hear, and she didn't look at the banks of the Thames slipping past or see the grim fortalice of the tower draw nearer, or notice the traitor's gate as they went through it. Eliza was in despair.